You're listening to the Bill Sunday School Podcast. So we're talking about the history of the Middle Ages all this month. Last week, we started kind of a big overview of what the Middle Ages are, why they're called the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages. We'll, we'll do a, a short review um, as well. But I was thinking about a movie um, that many of you probably like because some of you are nerds. Anybody a nerd in here and proud of it? Yeah, me too. Um, and, and so nerds often like this movie, Mighty, uh, Monty Python, Holy Grail. Any fans? And so I'm going to show you a video clip of Monty, Monty Python. I don't know why I can't say that. Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It's, it's a movie. If you've never seen the movie, um, you're, you're probably okay. <laughs> the fir- I remember the first time I saw the movie, it was, I went over to somebody's house and I watched it with a group of people who knew every single line by heart and were like quoting it before it was happening. And it was just really weird. It's one of those movies that you either love or hate. Um, and I, I guess I, I'm one of the only people that falls in the middle of just thinking it's okay um, as a movie. But I, I found a clip, and I really like this clip that's in the movie. So I guess I like the movie in general. But um, the clip um, is about witches. Do you know this clip where they, they have this little witch hunt that goes on? And um, I, I, I show you this clip because, of course, the whole movie is set in the Middle Ages. And, and this clip shows us something about witch hunts and uh, like the heresy hunts that went on in the Middle Ages and the, the people, medieval torturing people because they believed something different than you did or because they were a witch or a heretic or something like that. And so it's going to lead us into this discussion a little later on about how should we really treat people uh, that, that believe something differently than we do. But uh, enjoy this uh, one-minute clip. Here it is. May we burn her? Burn her! you know she is a witch? She looks like one. Bring her forward. I'm not a witch. I'm not a witch. But you are dressed as one. They dressed me up like this. And this isn't my nose. It's a false one. What makes you think she is a witch? Well, she turned me into a newt. A newt. We got better. Burn her anyway! There are ways of telling whether she is a witch. Uh, tell me, what do you do with witches? And what do you burn apart from witches? More witches! Wood! What also floats in water? Braid! Apples! Uh, very small rocks. A duck! <laughs> exactly. So, logically, if she weighs the same as a duck, she's made of wood. And therefore... A witch! A witch! A That clip is so dumb. It's kind of like the British slapstick dumb humor, but uh, dumb funny. Um, And so I think we're going to, I'm going to ask the discussion question, what should we do with people that don't believe like we believe? And of course, we as Americans love freedom. And we uh, look at the Middle Ages and we're like, man, they were so dumb back then. They were so superstitious back then. Things like that. Of course, the, the scene we just saw 
was humorous and, and made to be funny and slapstick. But there were things like that that happened in the Middle Ages. There was something called an ordeal. And, and basically, it was, well, we don't think about God working like this um, because it's just a different worldview. But in the Middle Ages, out of superstition, people really believed that you know, if someone was guilty of a crime, then bad things would happen to them. And so you could actually test that. And they, they in the Middle Ages, might even think scientifically somehow. And so what actually happened, there's documented cases of, of someone being accused of, the, of a crime of some sort. And they didn't really know if the person actually did the crime or not. And so what they did was they gave the person some sort of injury. And there's records of people um, getting like their hands burned in like boiling, scalding water, um, filling up a pot with boiling water, putting a stone at the bottom, and making that person get the stone out. And so then their hand would be burnt. And then if their hand got better after a few days, well then that meant that God was taking care of them and they must not be guilty of the crime they've been accused of, but if their hand got worse and like festered and more wounds um, surrounding the hand because of the, the boiling injury, then, then obviously God wasn't looking after them because they were guilty of the crime that they committed. And those kinds of things are documented. And we, we look at the Middle Ages and we just think, oh, gosh, they were so superstitious back then. It was so weird. And how does this, you know, how, how does this happen where church and state collide in such a weird way in the Middle Ages that, that there's these crimes of just being a witch and having to burn to death, or these crimes of being somewhat heretical in some doctrine and, and being killed for that doctrine. And so to, to, we're gonna, I'm going to give you a discussion question in just a second, but before we do that, uh, I just wanted to welcome you to the Mill Sunday School. Thanks for being here. If you're new, you can fill out a uh, Sunday School visitor card. It looks just like this. It's on, I think it's on all the tables, and if you fill one of these out, um, and bring it back to the people who uh, will, will greet you as you leave. Uh, stand, there'll be people in the lobby there. They'll give you a CD. The CD is a music recording from uh, one of our Friday nights of, of worship songs that we did back in the day. And so you could have that as a gift, uh, as, as a way of us saying, thanks for coming to the Mill Sunday School. We're glad that you're here. And, um, and usually, if you're, if you're new to Mill Sunday School, you don't know that we take Sunday School topics by month. And so all this month, um, if you love the Middle Ages, keep coming because that's what we're going to talk about all month and um, in some ways make it somewhat practical for us today because I think just learning about history, that's not the purpose of Sunday school, but, but the idea of learning about history so that we can learn maybe about ourselves, about our God, how God works is this bigger point. And so with that, I give you a discussion question which is somewhat related to the witches and the heretic trials that happened in the Middle Ages. And so imagine, if you will, um, imagine living in an all-Christian community in the Middle Ages. If you want, you could close your eyes and think about that. Imagine a small little village. There's chickens. There's some goats. Um, everybody you know is a Christian. That's just, it was, it was a Christian, um, Europe was very Christian in the Middle Ages. Um, if you were a Christian in the Middle Ages, what kind of denomination were you from? You were probably Catholic. Did you know that? Because the Protestant Reformation didn't happen until the 1500s. And we're looking at the Middle Ages, maybe specifically around 700-something A.D. And, and so if you were a Christian, you were a Catholic Christian. There wasn't yet the Baptists or the Presbyterians or any Protestants. It was just Catholics at the time, which is just fascinating, interesting to think about. So imagine yourself in this small village. There's chickens. You're living maybe by, by an old Roman road. 
and because you're very poor, maybe you took the stones from the old Roman road because everyone else was doing it, and you made your house out of the stonework of the old Roman roads, and so you're by this historical site, you're, you're pretty much camping, like we talked about last week, how the Middle Ages were a time of poverty, and, um, and, and so forth, and so um, here you are in this small village, an all-Christian village in this community in the Middle Ages, and so what would your reaction be? This is the discussion question to, to turn to somebody around you or just to think about it by yourself and, and then maybe interact with someone around you very quickly. Um, but what would your reaction be if a group of pagans moved in to your village? Like, let's say, maybe somewhat of a minority, but maybe an, enough to make a difference in your village. What would your reaction be? Would you, you know, especially being in the mindset of uh, someone from the Middle Ages and knowing that in the Old Testament it talks about how... All right, does, does anybody want to share a, a thought that they had with, with all of us that was either interesting or cool or thought-provoking? There's uh, some, a microphone or two around, and so get the attention of a microphone dude um, and, and maybe share so we can all hear your, your thought. Anybody want to start us off? Anybody? Bueller? Uh, yes. My small table came to the uh, um, conclusion that if we were back in that day, and yeah. we grew up there and everything, that if my priest told me that certain pagans had an evil spirit and that they were going to corrupt my children and take my wife, then I would probably kill them immediately. <laughs> Nice. That, that was but a, you're being, uh, like, you're just being, like, if you're really in that mindset of being uh, superstitious, and there's, then that's, that, I mean, that, honestly, that was the reaction in most of the Middle Ages. Thank you for sharing that, and thank you for maybe realizing that that, that would be the case if, if that was your only context and worldview. Um, and so, yeah, uh, uh, this guy, get him the mic. Thank you well, for sharing. What me and my table had decided is... Put yourself in the context that every chance you get to be with somebody is a chance to be a witness for who God really is. Yeah. And is God going to be this person that's going to just go murder somebody? Is he going to be the person that's going to say, you're not allowed in this house because you're a whore or you're this or you're that? What did Jesus Christ do? Right. He went with them. He went where they were. And so if we're to be a witness, why are we kicking them around? Yeah, so the idea of no matter what did happen, but what should happen if we are Christians is that we give, give these pagans and this just idea that, that we had, this, this example that we, we should be Christ to them. And so no matter what they do or maybe believe, that, that we as Christians should give them the power. Maybe they're powerless. Maybe they're a minority. Um, yes, thank you for sharing. That being said, also... Um Thinking about back in that time, just like Chris was saying, they knew the Bible by what the priest taught them, because most of them couldn't read. So they really didn't know what the scripture ultimately said about grace. So a lot of the persecution that happened, fear and paranoia, because there was no root. There was nothing that stated that we were forgiven. We had to pay penance to a priest to be forgiven. What they knew was what the priest had taught them, which most of it was the old law, the Old Testament. If you had done something, you would get your hand cut off, you know. So really, the then and now, we have a lot more understanding because we now have the education 
but we also have the Spirit of God teaching along with that, whereas before they didn't have that option. Yeah, yeah, thank you for sharing. Well, I think next week was, I really want to bring into this idea of like, what, it was, what was it like to be a Christian in the Middle Ages? And you brought uh, up an excellent point that, that they didn't have the Bible. And if they did, because books were so rare, the printing press had not happened yet, if you did have a Bible, maybe in your city, it would probably be in a language like Latin that you weren't that familiar with because you spoke another common language of the Northern European tribes. And so, anybody else want to share? Okay, let's um, continue on with this idea of of an overview of the Middle Ages, and then quickly um, we're going to get into this idea of the Holy Roman Empire and then come back to um, this bigger idea that we, I wanted to talk about today of, of church and state and, and how those things come together and, and, and how they did come together in the Middle Ages. And so before we do that, we'll open up with just an overview of the Middle Ages as kind of just a point of review. I'll put these dates up here, and I put ish, like 350-ish, through 1500-ish, and I even have a question mark next to it, because um, we're not really sure when the Middle Ages began and ended. If you, if you recall from last week, we talked about Rome, and how Rome was this awesome big empire um, in, the, in the 300s, all the way, maybe like the, the, starting with the, in the BC, the, the first century BC, all the way up to the three or the 400s. Um, this, is, this map represents the, the Roman Empire and how it surrounded the, the Mediterranean Sea and how huge and awesome and big it was. And Rome eventually, in somewhere around the 400s, uh, fell to the barbarians, as, as they were called, for these northern Germanic and French and uh, what is today, these tribes from Europe came down starting with, um, in 410 is usually the state that's kind of given when uh, er- Alaric, uh, I think that's how you pronounce his name, attacked Rome, the city, and sacked it. And so Rome fell in, in the 300s and the, uh, the 400s. The empire fell, Rome, the city fell, was sacked in 410, which really gave way to Europe being broken up amongst all these nation-states or city-states, and, and I don't know if you could see uh, this map specifically, but, but tribes like the Angles, the Saxons, the, the Balts, the Celtics, the Slavs, the Ostrogoths, the Visigoths, the Vandals, are all these different colors representing different areas of what was Rome. And so all these different areas had Rome and the Roman Empire as their history. They were somewhat Christian because Rome was a Christian empire. And so after Rome fell, led towards all these city-states and um, lots of instability, instability in, in the military powers at the time, in the political powers at the time. It would be cities warring against cities, uh, states warring against states, lots of war, lots of struggling for power, not like it was during the Roman Empire when there was one big, awesome power that kind of had control and gave stability to the, the, what is today Europe. And so let's talk about the Holy Roman Empire um, and how that came to be, because that's really kind of in, in the Dark Ages, in the Middle Ages, this, this piece of light, this maybe a renaissance that happened in the Middle Ages was during the Holy Roman Empire. But we'll talk about how the Holy Roman Empire was neither holy, nor Roman, nor an empire um, in just a second. But this is kind of the story of how it came to be. Um, and so this is a map here of of what was the Holy Roman Empire. And if you know Europe a little bit and, and the map of what you're looking at, you're looking at pretty much what was uh, what is today most of Germany and France, which compared to the entire Roman Empire, I try to put these two maps 
one on top of the other. And you could see that it's just a tiny little piece of what the Roman Empire was. So the idea that it's being called an empire is, is kind of silly um, because it wasn't an empire. It's just pretty much what today is Germany and France, just a two-country kind of nation-state. But the Holy Roman Empire, the story behind it, is that it started with the Carolingian Empire. And a Carolingian is the name of a family, a family of Franks. And Franks are the, was this tribe, this Germanic, West Germanic tribe, kind of what is today Germany and, uh, of course, France. And, and there was a guy who became a king during um, this Carolingian Empire. He is the guy that is on the f- cover of the, the notes that we handed out today. If you've ever um, wondered who that guy was, not ever, but when you came in and you handed this piece of paper, you're like, ooh, who's that good-looking guy on the cover there? That was probably what you thought. Um, and so he is Charles the Great, um, also called Charlemagne. Charlemagne in Old French uh, means Charles the Magnificent or Charles the Great. Here's another picture of him. He has a cool beard, and um, he has a sword in his hand, and he has a cross. And he was the empire uh, emperor um, of this Holy Roman Empire. We'll talk about how he became that in a second. But his dates uh, of, of living there is 742 to 814. Kind of just give you this idea of that's when he lived. So let's talk about Charles the Great for just a second. He was devoutly Christian. He, of course, um, if he was a Christian in the Middle Ages, what denomination would he have been in? He was Catholic because the other, the Protestant Reformation had not happened yet, which, by the way, is kind of in some ways the ending of the Dark Ages. Some people say that maybe the, the Dark Ages ended on uh, 1517, the, the year that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. And, and so from then on, we have the Protestant Reformation and this enlightening that happens, or this renaissance, this rebirth that begins to happen in knowledge. But anyways, he, here's Charlemagne. We're talking about the Middle Ages still, um, so, so to back up. And we're talking about specifically this guy that was devoutly Christian. He's kind of a man's man, very strong, very tall, a hunter, a warrior. Um, his biographer said that, that he never, ever lost a battle. He, whenever he went to war, he always won the battle. He, he, was, he was whatever for zero. He, he never lost a battle. And often he would take over a, a place and give those people kind of include them into the empire instead of just taking them over and making them slaves. And so I don't know exactly what I think about this. I think it's pretty cruel. But, but he, the, the story is that he fought with the Saxon tribes, these northern tribes of Europe. And instead of just destroying them and burning their cities to the ground, he forcibly baptized everyone, man, woman, and child, forcibly baptized them, which in some weird way actually worked because... The Saxons, when they got forcibly baptized, it was kind of like they were forsaking their pagan gods, and then they believed that their pagan gods would then forsake them. So then the only god they could turn to was the god they were just baptized into, and so they became Christians, and some, for some odd reason it actually worked, which is just really weird, because that's, like, that's not what we do when we baptize people at New Life. We don't like grab them and chain them and then dunk them. Um, that's just not how we do it. If you've seen a baptism, it's usually free choice that a person, always free choice that a person is getting baptized. And so, um, so the, there's Charlemagne forcibly baptizing people, but devoutly Catholic. And we're, as we're going to begin to see this, this interlocking of, of church 
and state and how they're one and the same because Charlemagne had great relationships with the popes. Here's a picture of Charlemagne going down to see a pope. This particular pope is Pope Adrian I. And in the year 772, um, there was some wars going on around Rome, some invaders to Rome, and the pope needed military help. Who's he going to call? He calls Charlemagne because Charlemagne is the biggest, baddest, awesomest um, warrior, king in all of Europe, and so he has the military power to back and, and to, to kick out the invaders. And so the Pope calls uh, Charlemagne down. Charlemagne comes to Rome with all of his troops, helps the Pope out. And here we have that picture kind of displaying that idea. And then the next Pope, after Adrian, comes Pope Leo III. And he's famous for pretty much one reason, and we'll see that reason in just a second. Because he also had military problems in Rome. People came invading Rome. He once again calls Charlemagne. Charlemagne comes down, helps him out with military power. And so we're seeing this this church and state interlocking kind of thing going on. But here's what Pope Leo does. Pope Pope Leo III is famous because on Christmas Day, um, on the year 800, um, in St. Peter's Basilica, if you've ever seen pictures of that awesome uh, beautiful building. It wasn't quite that awesome back in the 800s, but still awesome, still like the symbol of, of the Holy Roman Catholic Church. Pope Leo III crowns Charlemagne, Charles the Great. He crowns him Holy Roman Emperor, which should, in your mind, be like, wait, what did he crown him? Because Charlemagne is just King of the Franks, and so it's not like Pope Leo crowned him King of the Franks. He crowned him Holy Roman Emperor emperor. And, and, the, and supposedly uh, uh, Charlemagne puts on the eagle's seal, this representation of the, the, the Roman Empire. And it's just this weird happening because the Roman Empire fell like back in the 400s. And here it is the year 800 and he's being crowned Roman emperor. If that's interesting to you, turn to your neighbor and say, what in the world? It, it, yeah, it is interesting, don't you think? And it, it, because, remember we talked about last week, and if you were here last week, you, you have this idea and this thought that all during the Middle Ages, people looked back at history of the Romans and said that Rome was so much better than the, where they were now. And there was all this looking back at the past, saying, if only we could get back to the past, if only we could get back a few hundred years ago, then things would be better than they are now. And so that, that really is just this, this story of, how, how people thought back in the Middle Ages, because, because here this German-French dude is being crowned Holy Roman Emperor. And it's, it's not that holy, and we'll talk about that in a second, but it's not Roman at all. I mean, he's French, he's German, he's not Roman. So it's not holy, it's not Roman, and it wasn't an empire, because as we saw from the map, it's just a tiny little piece of what the Holy Roman Emperor Empire was. And at this time, we have uh, coins like this, that's a picture of Charlemagne, which the first thing you might see is the olive branches around his head. He looks clearly very Roman. It's like, wait, he wasn't a Roman emperor. He was, he was a German, like French dude. And then the, the, the description around the inscription says, uh, Carlos, uh, and then on the, on the right it says I-M-P-A-U-V or A-V-E, which means um, uh, Carlos means Charles and the I-M-P emperor. And then A-U-G or A-V-G is Augustine. So and Augustine, of course, was the first emperor of the Roman Empire way back in the day, like at the time of Jesus. And so here's this coin with a Roman-looking Charlemagne on it. 
and, and, and the, the idea of that he's, he's the emperor in the line of Augustine. That's just very interesting. It's very weird. It's, it's like, why in the world did that happen? And it happened, maybe if you, if you listened to last week's lecture, there's this bigger idea of looking back to the past and thinking the past is so much better. The Roman Empire was so much better than where things were now and, and how that, for the future, is just this idea that, 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 that Charlemagne is, is grabbing the past and saying, here I am, I'm in line with these Roman empires and emperors, which just, interesting, interesting, interestingly enough, just wasn't the case. And so let's talk about how church met state in this holy Roman empire, which was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire, but um, unapologetically, church and state met. Like today, in the United States, we talk about, oh, the separation of church and state, how we need to have a separation of church and state, how we shouldn't bully other religions, even if they're weird, or even if they're very small, or we, we should give everyone religious freedoms. Throw that idea out the window for the Middle Ages, because no one thought like that. There was just this perfect combination of politics, and popes, and kings, and church leaders, and bishops, and this intermingling of, of church and state, and there was, I, I look at it, and I see no such thing as separation of church and state in the Middle Ages. For instance, Charlemagne made rules and laws governing how a church service should go, and in fact, I, I kind of agree with these laws, they're good laws, but here's a king making laws about how a church service should go, and the law he made, as he said, whenever a church service is, is met in that area, in that area, um, the common language should be spoken in the church service. And this is kind of a, a law that was put into effect way before its time because all throughout the Middle Ages, the holy language was Latin. And yet people didn't speak Latin. If you lived in, you know, if you were kind of a Franc and you lived in what is today uh, Germany slash France, then you spoke a very, very old, old German-French language. You didn't speak Latin. And yet when you went to church, the priest was speaking Latin to you, and so you had no idea what was going on. Imagine if I was speaking another language, and you just got a bagel and your coffee, and you sat down for like 45 minutes, and you just looked at me. I mean, can you imagine that being your church service, if I was speaking in another language? It would just be very odd and very weird, and of course led to lots of superstitions that we have today, um, and not we have today, that, that they had back then. Um, so, uh, so Charlemagne is making laws about how a church service should be run. He made a law about how Sunday uh, it needs to be kept as the day of Sabbath, as a day of rest, as the day that that's when the church service needs to happen. So here a king is making laws about church life. He made other reforms, like here's a, a picture of an awesome monastery. And, and, and back in the day, around 700, 800s, the monasteries were these places of wealth and fame and um, luxurious living and people wanted to become monks and nuns because they would have wealth and luxurious living. And Charlemagne said, that shouldn't be. Monks and nuns and monasteries should be places uh, where, where Jesus is served and where those people serve the people. And so he made a lot of reforms saying, listen, the, the, the monasteries are getting too rich and famous and luxurious. They need to be brought back to their original intended purpose of serving the people. Um, he made other reforms, uh, specifically in education, which this is way before its time as well. But he said that the goal would be that every church 
had a school attached to it. Of course, the school wasn't a public school. The church school would be the church school. It would be very interwebbed with whatever was taught at the church would be taught at the school. But, uh, but Charlemagne's idea was that every church should have a school and that the school should be open for everyone, rich or poor. And of course, back in the Middle Ages, um, women were not educated. So unfortunately, women weren't educated, but every Every boy, every man would be educated no matter how rich nor how poor they were. They would be educated with a Christian, of course, education. And this, this seemingly is, is some, sometimes historians call this the, the Carolingian Renaissance or the Renaissance um, in the Middle Ages, like right smack dab in the, middle of the, in the middle of the Middle Ages is this shedding of light. And this, this light and this, the things that Charlemagne brought to Europe were awesome. He brought education and political stability and all these things, but it only lasted a very short time. It was like a quick candle light that went, that got lit and then quickly blown out because as soon as Charlemagne left and died, he left the empire to his sons who ended up ruining it and squabbling and, and making wars with themselves. So anyways, so that's, that's kind of the empire itself. And if, then, of course, there's things that happened in the Middle Ages of this interlocking of church and state that weren't that good. And here's a picture of depicting some sort of medieval torture. And you can see that the people in the background, the people that look like they're over are, are over the what's going on here, are dressed up as a, a priest and a, a monk. And so we, have, we do have, in the Middle Ages, times in which heretics are tortured. We have times in which witches are actually killed. And going back to the, the funny clip we saw of... of um, the, the movie Holy, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, things like that in a, in a weird roundabout way did kind of happen. And, and witches were, in a very superstitious way, burned or killed or drowned. And, and sometimes witch hunts went on where people may or may not even be guilty of being a witch or a pagan, but there was hysteria and there was superstition and there was just fear that, oh, maybe they are a witch and they're going to hurt us or something like that. And so trials... Um, Heresy trials did happen um, during Charlemagne's reign. We have um, these, these lists of laws that said, if you were not a Christian, the penalty for not being a Christian in his empire was death. And so if you wanted to worship another pagan, you could do that, but we're going to kill you. The, the penalty for worshiping another god is death. The penalty for not getting baptized, death. The penalty for having some sort of other, like a, a funeral service in which you cremate instead of bury, because they, they believe that Christians get buried. Um, and so if you were a pagan, follower of a pagan god that required your ancestors to be cremated, you could cremate your ancestors, but then the penalty would be death. And so it's like all these things. There was no freedom uh, for religion given to outside of, of those that were Christians. There was, there was a taxation that was like a tie that you had to... T- you had to give to the local church. Here's a picture of someone collecting a tithe. It was collected as a tax. And so we see these, this interlocking of, of church and state, which is very unlike today that, that we have in this worldview of Americans. We're like, yeah, there should be this separation of church and state. And we're this great country that gives freedoms to, the, to those that are unlike us. And we give freedoms to those that are in the minority. And we do try to give power to the powerless. And we allow people to worship their God as, as they see fit, while we as, as Americans and as new lifers here at Sunday School, we are allowed to freely meet in this building. And we're freely allowed to do that because of freedoms and the separation of church and state. And in the Middle Ages, there just wasn't that separation 
of church and state, as, as I think I've, I've shown very clearly, that there was this interlocking of, of popes and kings and this power displayed between the two, and there was, there was no separation. And sometimes as Christians in America, you know, we want separation of church and state, and yet as Christians we're like, man, wouldn't it be cool if, if this state... If, if our country was more Christian. And so sometimes we as, as believers, as evangelical Protestants, talk about how our nation was founded on Christian principles and by um, maybe Christian leaders who signed the Declaration of Independence, that we're a Christian nation because it was founded on Christian principles, etc. And so sometimes when, when news stories come up in the news and how maybe the Ten Commandments, are they're taking them out of uh, courthouses, we as Christians are like, oh, come on, man. We, we want to get those back in there because we, of course, believe in the Ten Commandments and we believe they're good. And we would say and we would make arguments about how our country is founded upon Christian principles of the Ten Commandments. And why should we remove those? Or when there's news articles about how, oh, people, various atheist groups or whatever, want to remove in God we trust from our coinage. And we're like, oh, come on. I mean, we're a Christian nation. They're, you know, we are Christians and we want that to be on there. Or... Um, way back in the day, none of you are old enough to remember this, I imagine, but probably in your parents' day, there was prayer in public schools. People would leave, uh, lead religious prayer, religious um, gatherings in the school, whereas today it's highly separated. A teacher can't just in class say, okay, let's open up a class today um, and with a word of prayer. You'd be all like, what? What are we doing? This is, this, is, you know, this is a violation of separation of church and state. Um, and so these crossroads of where church and state meet, um, this would be literally, but I'm talking figurative, of course, um, is that we as Christians, I think sometimes, and, and I would be guilty of this in various levels of, of, of wanting the United States, as I'm an American, wanting this, um, um, this idea of you know, ch- the separation of church and state, like, like I, I believe in that, I want that, but then at the same time, wanting maybe like, oh, how sweet it is that our coins do say, in God we trust, or this idea that we were founded upon Christian uh, principles and as a Christian nation because our forefathers were, were Christians. And sometimes maybe we, maybe we have these idealistic goals or, or thoughts about wouldn't it be sweet if we could come together as a Christian nation and, and be a truly Christian nation. But, but the warning that we should take, the, the heed of warning that we should take from the Middle Ages is here was a time in history when the Christians had it. They had all political power. They had um, popes and kings um, interlocking their power, and it was a Christian country. There were Christian uh, nation-states, Christian empires in the Middle Ages, and some of the things that happened were very embarrassing, like the witch trials that we talked about, like the heresies, um, the heretic trials that we, that we mentioned. I showed you a picture of someone being tortured. Like Those kind of things happened because of the hysteria and because of the lack of separation in church and state. And so we go back to this idea that maybe we began with, this idea of, you know, what should our reaction be as Christians? And sometimes those Christians that have the power, um, that that we have political power in some way, because in in a lot of ways we're a majority. What should our reaction be to those that are not like us? Maybe groups of atheists, maybe groups of homosexuals, maybe Muslims, maybe um, left-wing liberals, or maybe women who have had abortions, or people that fall into these minority groups that that would be clearly um, different in belief than the Christians. What should we do? What should our reaction be to those groups? And I I started thinking this week about the kingdom of God and how 
and how Jesus fulfilled this kingdom idea of the Old Testament. And so I started thinking about what the things that Jesus taught and how what a, a Jesus kingdom should look like and what if there really is a Christian kingdom on earth, what should that kingdom look like? Because Jesus had some things to say about the kingdom of God. He had lots to teach about the kingdom of God. He said things like um, on, the, on your notes... He says uh, this quote, which we used as a sweet quote of today, if you're taking notes and you saw that. Jesus says this, But to those who are listening, I say, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. And we as Christians you know, read that, and we, we've heard it maybe a million times because maybe we just know that that's one of the teachings of Jesus. But have you ever sat down and thought about it? And it's like, are we really supposed to do that? Are we our enemies, for goodness sakes? We're supposed to love them? And that this kingdom of God you know, loves their enemies? Are we really supposed to do that? Those people that maybe be doing wrong to us or carrying out a plan that is totally opposite of the, the plan that we believe is the will of God? Are we really supposed to love our enemies? And, and we would say, well, these are the words from our Savior. These are the words that, that we believe God himself said as Jesus is God. It's like, this is the kind of teaching that Jesus said. This is what the kingdom being fulfilled is really all about. Um, he says this, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The meek, those that are powerless. And as we talk today about, you know, what would we do if we were in the Middle Ages and we were a Christian community and a group of pagans came in, maybe a minority, and they were obviously very powerless because they're coming into our community. Well, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Then this next quote that I have from Jesus himself. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And we think about, like Charlemagne, that it's not very merciful of him to forcibly baptize the Saxons. It's, it's, that's not merciful at all. And yet, part of the kingdom of God, if, if it really is the kingdom of God, then what would happen is people would show mercy, even at the risk of, uh, of I don't know what, of, of enemies coming in and then, and then loving our enemies. And this is a very interesting, very maybe upside-down teaching to how the real world works in some senses, that, that we put people at the top who are not merciful and, and can make justice and things happen and, and make our enemies um, run in fear. And yet Jesus has this upside-down kingdom where, where we are supposed to love our enemies and where the, the meek will inherit the earth and where we should be merciful to those that are powerless. Um, and these things that are just seemingly totally upside-down to us and what we think of as like a real kingdom. But um, I'll, I'll leave you with this one more quote. Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And I think the poor, my, my goodness, like we, we think about a kingdom and a king and having all his riches and wealth and his power. But Jesus t- taught that the poor are those that, that will be um, theirs in the kingdom of God. And so we have this upside down kingdom, this idea that I want to leave you with that, that when we as Christians are in power, I think the kingdom of God is all about giving power to the powerless. And if we are truly to, to have this kingdom of God, and when we as Christians come to power, I think the Middle Ages had it right in some ways, and they did some great things with their kingdom of God and this church and state interlocking, but I think they really missed it when, when, they, when they came to the powerless, and they just destroyed the powerless. They just, we'll talk about the Crusades 
later this month, and we just destroyed the Muslims that were living amongst the European Christians at the time. We, we destroyed the, these pagans that were living with Christians at the time and were minorities. We just destroyed them because they were powerless and they were different than us. And I think Jesus requires us, the teachings of Jesus require us as Christians that when we come into power, to give power to the powerless. And so it's that idea that let's close with this morning. And so God, we, we do tell you as believers that that we are willing to follow in your footsteps, in your ways, even though it doesn't, it seems like almost like an upside down kind of thing to us that we should love our enemies or that the poor, they will inherit the kingdom. God, those, those ideas and those principles seem so uh, upside down to us, but God, we, we, we worship you, and because we worship you, we thank you for those words. We thank you that those words are challenging to us as Christians. And God, would you help us as, as we as Christians in America, living God, when we come to power, would you help us carry out your kingdom in the way in which you want us to carry it out? God, we do praise you this morning. We leave here worshiping your name and loving you, Jesus. And everybody said, amen. All right, peace out. Any mothers in here? Give, give some mothers a high five, all right? All right, peace. <laughs>